like I'm here on, on American Idol or Dancing with Stars. If you, if, you, if you don't like my talk, call in and I won't get to speak again. But <laughs> if you do call in and say good things, then I, I can talk again. What I'd like to talk about today, the heart of it is actually impressed with a British journal called International Politics. But I'd also like to use this forum basically to expand on that article and speculate uh, in a little bit of a personal way as someone who's had the, the experience of working both for the current White House and for a major European university. There aren't that many people who have done uh, both of those. The, in fact, the, uh, the experience of going from the Bush White House to Cambridge was one that I can only characterize as ideological whiplash. Uh, where in the Bush White House they thought I was a, a flaming left winger, and in Cambridge I seemed to be a right-wing fascist. Uh, so the experience has, has meant that I've had a very particular take on the transatlantic ten tensions that have erupted over the Iraq War. Uh, also, I've noticed something unusual. The, the, the discourse in Europe is, is obsessed with U.S. foreign policy, but it is a, a debate in Europe that is in some ways devoid of ongoing American contributions because there aren't that many American academics based permanently abroad. Unlike the British Empire, which was a net exporter of both people and capital, there's not that many expat Americans. The United States uh, at, at currently is a net importer of both people and capital. There's only about 4 million Americans based abroad, and most of us are in Western Europe uh, and in Mexico. So as one of the Americans based abroad, I have a little bit of a, um, a different perspective on the, on the transatlantic tensions that have erupted. And I'd like to talk about those today and then afterwards take some questions and you can have at me. I do want to say just by way of introduction, I will talk about the United States and Europe, but I know that they're not synonyms. I know that there is not a United States of Europe. I'm doing that mainly just to because the time today is so short. Uh, I realize that were I ha if I were to have longer or in the written format, I would be talking about European nations individually. But uh, just for today, I will, sim I will simplify and talk about Europe. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to just first talk about how, how big is the problem of transatlantic tensions. And then I'd like to talk about, and I, you'll, you will see that I will suggest that there is a substantive problem, and then talk about some alternative hypotheses about the origins of this problem, and finally offer some speculations from my own experience of working for the White House on September 11th. So first, the size of the problem. Piles of polling data, which Rick Herman knows even better than I do, show that the health of the transatlantic link is indeed frail. The Transatlantic Trends Report is one of the key documents on this topic. It's published by the German Marshall Fund every year, every fall. Uh, in late 2005, the German Marshall Fund indicated that an eye-popping 85% of German and French respondents were opposed to the conduct of U.S. foreign policy, 85%. Uh, a year previously, in February and March 2004, the Pew Research Center posed questions about the Iraq War not only in Europe, but also in the Middle East and Africa. When it asked poll respondents if they thought that U.S. and British leaders honestly believed on the basis of intelligence that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or if Bush and Blair had simply lied because they wanted an excuse to go to war, 82% of French respondents said that they had simply lied, that Bush and Blair knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in advance of invading, and they had lied because they were so war-hungry. The French percentage was actually higher than that in Morocco, which was 48%, Pakistan, which was 61%, and Turkey and Jordan, which were both 69%. Or to cite another worrying poll result from last year, 
When asked if they trusted Putin or Bush more on the eve of Putin's uh, visit with Bush, a, major, a plurality of Germans said that they trusted Putin more than Bush. Now, it would be interesting to repeat this poll in the wake of the oil scandals now with the cutoff to Ukraine and the, uh, the incident that happened this weekend. But I suspect that the results would actually not be very different. Or to use a more unusual barometer, here are some excerpts from the Nobel Prize acceptance speech of the British winner, Harold Pinter. I'm amazed at how little press this received on this side of the ocean. This was front page news on all European papers in December when he gave the speech. He actually did not attend the ceremony in person. He recorded the talk and released a transcript, which was then published. Excerpts from it were published in great length in major European newspapers. You can see uh, his attitude here towards the United States. It has supported and engendered every single right-wing military dictatorship in the world. Uh, again, remember, this is a Nobel Prize acceptance speech. This is not something teenagers are shouting in the street. This is a, a formal, formal setting in which this is being delivered. The crimes of the United States have been systematic, constant, vicious, and remorseless, but very few people have actually talked about them. You have to hand it to America. It has exercised quite cynical manipulation of power worldwide. Or the United States no longer bothers about low-intensity conflict. It no longer sees any point in being reticent or even devious. It simply puts its cards on the table without fear, without favor. Quite simply doesn't give a damn about the UN. Now, this is obviously uh, pretty harsh stuff, but I would say that it is characteristic of the views of a probably a plurality of my students and my colleagues at Cambridge. Uh, they would express it more delicately, but would ultimately be in sympathy with these views. So these are just a few random anecdotes, but I'm sure Rick could give you more polling data. I could give you more polling data. Suffice it to say that the sense of rupture is not in doubt. So the question is, why have relations gotten so bad? What are the causes of the deterioration? Well, for the bulk of my time today, I'd like to look at four alternative hypotheses. And I've got them uh, listed up here basically in ascending order of likelihood. Is it caused by new unprecedented disagreement over the use of force as a tool of statecraft between the United States and Europe? Is it caused by a drifting apart at culturally and economically? Do the U.S. and Europe simply have no shared interests anymore? Is it caused by an imbalance in military and technological capabilities? Or is it caused by the strategic decisions of the current administration? Well, as to the first explanation, caused by a new unprecedented disagreement over the use of force as a tool of statecraft, as a historian of the Cold War, I say that this is absolutely not the case. This hypothesis does not explain what's going on. There are plenty of precedents over uh, tensions over when and under what circumstances to use force. Most famously, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Suez Crisis. Uh, as The Economist has pointed out, if you were just reading about the Suez Crisis for the first time this year, if you knew nothing about it, you started reading about it, you might think that whatever you were reading about had gotten the words America and Britain and France mixed up. Uh, Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister from 1955 to 1957, considered the nationalization of the Suez Canal, in which both Britain and France held large stakes, as, quote, clear evidence that Egypt was out to cause further trouble in the region. Britain and France, as a result, were justified in invading Egypt in order to prevent greater danger and, quote, protect the security of the region. Uh, this invasion would also, it was hoped, not coincidentally, allow Eden to boost his popularity at home. 
In the face of what Nasser had done, Eden declared that any treaties that might render the invasion illegal were, quote, history. The invasion was deeply unpopular in the United States. President Eisenhower, in particular, felt that there should be, quote, no thought of military action whatsoever, especially as it would cost the West the moral high ground during the simultaneous Soviet invasion of Budapest. And when the British and French and Israelis went ahead anyway, Eisenhower famously imposed economic sanctions and forced them to withdraw. Ike felt that the biggest danger in the region was not Nasser, but Eden, because his jingoism would only create increased support for Arab nationalism. Again, this is all the Suez crisis. Then we have the 1960s, when Charles de Gaulle, in in another famous spat about when to use force, withdraws France from NATO's integrated command. And I'll talk more about that in a second. The 1970s, anti-American protests over the Vietnam War spread throughout Europe. The 1980s, battles over the stationing of intermediate-range nuclear forces. In the 1990s, conflicts over what to do in the Balkans. In other words, there's simply no shortage of transatlantic tensions over when and under what circumstances to use military force. Let me talk a little bit more, as I promised, about the example of the 1960s. I had the chance to review a book by Tom Schwartz, a Cold War historian at Vanderbilt University. Tom Schwartz's book was about transatlantic relations in the shadow of Vietnam. And I was originally asked to review it as part of a group of books on the Vietnam War. But what really struck me about Tom Schwartz's book was its story of Paris versus Texas. A strong, right, a strong right-wing French president seeks to constrain the United States. He is supported by waves of anti-American protests and marches all over Europe. At times, the president of France is in what seems to be a personal struggle with the cowboy president from Texas. This cowboy president is all the more grating because he follows a silver-haired Democrat who made himself beloved in Europe as few presidents had ever been. Meanwhile, Gerhard Schroeder was was quietly trying to maneuver behind the scenes to keep the transatlantic alliance together. But Gerhard Schroeder's job was made more difficult by comments from the president of France such as the following. I really like the president of the United States. He doesn't even take the trouble to pretend he's thinking. Or comments from the German chancellor along the lines of, it is absolutely insufferable that Europe should be dependent on this accidental cowboy president from Texas. Now, of course, these are quotations from the 1960s. The accidental cowboy president from Texas is Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, The Gerhard Schroeder I mentioned, no relation at all to the German chancellor who just left office, was foreign minister at the time. So clearly, relations were badly strained even then. As a matter of fact, if you had to pick a real low point in transatlantic relations, I would submit to you that this might even be it. When Charles de Gaulle uh, told at the United States that all U.S. presidents, sorry, when Charles de Gaulle told the United States that all U.S. servicemen should withdraw from France, that was a real low in transatlantic relations. Now, it was fortunate for me personally because when Charles de Gaulle threw all U.S. servicemen out of France, that meant that my dad went home and met my mom. So thank you, Charlie de Gaulle. (laughs) But uh, it prompted, on a more serious note, it prompted Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State, reportedly to ask, If all Americans have to leave, does that include the dead Americans in French military cemeteries as well? It's hard to get much lower than that. So uh, the notion that somehow we've got unprecedented tensions over the use of force is, I think, absolutely wrong. What about the notion that the United States and Europe simply have no shared interests? 
If you look at transatlantic relations through the lens of business relations, they look a whole lot rosier than they do through the lens of political relations. The United States and Europe together are the twin engines of the global economy. Transatlantic business exceeds $2.5 trillion a year and provides jobs for 12 million workers. Or to put it another way, if you look at foreign direct investment, U.S. foreign direct investment, uh, a, a very interesting picture emerges. We hear a lot about China in the media nowadays. But as of 2005, the United States had invested twice as much in the Netherlands as it had in China. I'm talking about foreign direct investment. And it invested, I'm sorry, America invested twice as much in the Netherlands as it had in Mexico and ten times as much in the Netherlands as it had in China. Another way to look at the transatlantic relationship is in terms of tourism. Now, this is World Trade uh, Organization information on tourism. What's relevant for our purposes here are these two green bands at the bottom. Essentially, uh, those are a measure of transatlantic tourism as opposed to trans-Pacific tourism, which would be the lighter colored band at the top. As you can see, if you want to look at, uh, at tourist statistics, you see no sign of decreasing interest in visiting uh, both sides of the Atlantic. So I hope even this brief cursory overview has showed that I disagree with the notion that somehow we've lost interest in each other, economically or culturally. Well, what about the argument that what's going on is happening because the U.S. is militarily powerful and Europe isn't? At its heart, this is basically the old Bob Kagan argument. We're powerful and they're not. Americans are from Mars, Europeans are from Venus. Well, I think that there is something to this argument, but it needs to be put in context. It needs to be explored with a bit of nuance. Uh, America is militarily preponderant in the world today. I don't think there's any way around that. But it has to be considered in terms of Joe Nye's multi-level chessboard, in other words, in terms of other kinds of might. If you look at the state of the U.S. economy, there is clearly reason for concern. This year, 2006, consumers will face high fuel prices, flattening house prices, and most likely increased inflation, all of which will soften consumer spending. And this will take place against the background of two enormous problems. First, the U.S. current account deficit. And I realize this slide is a little bit hard to see, but what this shows is the U.S. current account deficit as a percentage of U.S. GDP, and you can see it's currently above minus 6%. So we're talking about a current account deficit of 6.5% in 2005, and the economist estimates 6.6% in 2006. The other big problem in the United States is, of course, U.S. budget deficits. And you see here the budget deficit projections from OMB, and actually it came out uh, just, I believe, January 13th, that these are over-optimistic. Uh, the budget deficit will, in fact, the White House has admitted, be more than uh, $400 billion in uh, in this year in contradiction of these predictions. Uh, unfunded benefit liabilities are largely driving this deficit, in particular Social Security and Medicare. 45 million Americans, of course, have no health coverage whatsoever. So I'm just mentioning this to say that I recognize there, there are reasons for concern about the U.S. economy. I acknowledge these major structural concerns. But any discussion of transatlantic relations has to take into account certain basic U.S. strengths. As an earlier period, such as the time of dominance of the British Empire, we are in fact living in a time when a single predominant military power has arisen. Now, as many of you know, there's a debate raging over whether or not to call U.S. power imperial. 
I actually am not particularly interested in this debate because it seems to me that it depends on how you define imperial. You could define America as an imperial power and also define it not as an imperial power. For the purposes here today, what I call American dominance I think is less important than the kind of evidence I provide uh, of it. We can measure American might through a variety of criteria, military criteria, technological criteria, some economic criteria, and also looking at it in a comparative historical perspective. Militarily, I'm showing you a picture here of the Ronald Reagan. Uh, the, the Navy spe specialists in the room will know that this is the United States' most recent aircraft carrier. It is the latest one in the Nimitz class. Uh, the final one in the Nimitz class will be the Bush, which is currently still under construction. This one, however, uh, arrived in its home port in July 2004 and so is on active duty. It's home to, it's basically a floating city. It's home to about 6,000 Navy personnel. It's powered by two nuclear reactors, which means that it can go for 20 years without refueling and it carries 80 aircraft. Now, this uh, carrier has now joined the other carriers deployed around the world, and I have to say I'm grateful to the office of Paul Kennedy for providing the slide. The reason it's dated 2001 is that you can no longer get this information after September 11th. The Navy decided to stop putting these kind of slides on the website. So I'm grateful to Paul Kennedy for passing along this historical slide. I think it's still useful because it gives you a sense of the, the reach global reach that the U.S. Navy provides. Now, of course, these little red dots, those aren't just a single aircraft carrier floating out there. An aircraft carrier doesn't go anywhere by itself. For protection, it sails with a carrier strike group. This includes two guided missile cruisers, a guided missile destroyer for anti-air warfare, a destroyer for anti-submarine warfare, a frigate, attack submarines, and of course, ammunition ships, oilers, supply ships, and so forth. The entire group, the entire carrier strike group, costs more than the whole Spanish defense budget. It costs about $13 billion for each carrier strike group. No other nation can afford one, and the United States currently has 12 and another one on the way. And of course, this, this, you know, this advertisement I'm giving for the U.S. Navy is not a complete picture. Above these carriers fly state-of-the-art fighters and attack planes, with the air, of course, with the Navy and with the Air Force. There are long-range bombers, long-range heavy lift aircraft, above all of that, a sophisticated satellite network. Another way to think about this is, is in terms of spending. About half of all of the world's defense spending comes out of U.S. taxpayer pockets. Think about that. We're only 300 million people strong, and we spend half of all the money in the world that is spent on defense spending. The best source to actually track down military spending is a book called The Military Balance that's published every fall by the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. And the reason I recommend this is that IISS, where I spent a year, is an independent organization. It's not allied to any governments. And what it does is it, it, it measures actual spend. In other words, not promised procurement, not predictions, but what was actually spent in the previous year. So the most recent edition of Military Balance, which came out in 2005, has the actual spend for 2004, which you see on the bottom line here. Uh, and as you see, uh, this was 3.8% of U.S. GDP. That's been fairly constant in the last few years. In 2003, it was 36 of U.S. GDP. And this is not difficult for the U.S. economy to sustain. As you can see, the United States spent an average of 7.28% of its GDP throughout the Cold War. So we're not, we're, we're just, it's something approaching half 
basically half of what the United States sustained throughout the decades of the Cold War. What's truly amazing, actually, uh, and this is, this is um, one of the issues I discuss in my book, German Military Reform and European Security, is what the European member states of NATO spend on their defense. I always manage to stump my students with this. What, those of you who do defense diplomacy professionally don't answer this, but what would people think if you add together what all the European member states of NATO spend on defense? What percentage is it of U.S. defense spending? Any guesses? what the European member states spend, it is close to $235 billion. And for that spending, the European member states of NATO, even though they're spending 50% of what the U.S. spends, they attain nothing like 50% of the capacity. As a matter of fact, in Kosovo, which is a good example because it's the only real firefight that NATO has ever had, only the British and the French made any military contribution at all. They flew 20% of the aerial sorties, and that's it. No other European member state of NATO made any military contribution. Now, if I were a European tax, actually, I am a European taxpayer. I really, <laughs> I, have the, I have the wonderful joy of paying taxes on both sides of the ocean. Um, I would actually really like to know where that money is going. It is spent in spectacularly inefficient ways. Uh, it's unbelievably redundant. Every European member state has to have its own military academies. There's very little division of labor. Uh, it's basically a, a covert subsidy to European defense agencies. So there are homegrown defense industries that can compete with U.S. defense industries. It's also a, a covert subsidy to social welfare programs. For example, in Germany, about half of the young men who are drafted opt to do civilian service instead of military service, meaning they can work in places like nursing homes and hospitals, but they're paid by the army because they're working at, they're, they're performing what's called Zivildienst, civil service. That comes out of the military budget. Now, I have no objection at all to the money being spent that way. As a matter of fact, I think it's a good idea, but it's just misleading to qualify it as defense spending. But that's a bit of a, uh, of a sidebar. Getting back to measures of U.S. strength. Another way that you can measure U.S. strength is that despite all of its economic difficulties, it is still important to remember that the U.S. is number one in the world in total GDP. I realize this may also be hard to see from the back of the room. We have total GDP here. Uh, the U.S. is number one, and it produces about 30% of total world product. Another way to measure U.S. dominance is in terms of Nobel Prizes. Now, this is a very interesting indicator. About 70% of all Nobel Prizes in the last 20 years have been won by Americans. Now, I need to qualify that. By Americans, I mean generally university scholars who have chosen to work in America. They may or may not be U.S. citizens, but they have chosen to work at U.S. universities and U.S. research institutes because they recognize that those are the best places to promote their research. So 70% of Nobel Prizes have been won by American-based uh, nominees. And if you just limit that to technical Nobel Prizes, the number goes up to above 80%. This actually was a relatively bad year for the United States because U.S.-based citizens won only 6 of 10. Usually it's closer to 8 out of 10, and it is going to go up in the future, going to go up. Why is that? Well, Nobel Prizes are lagging indicators. In a Guardian interview in 2003, a British-based winner, Sir Peter Mansfield of the University of Nottingham, winner in physics, pointed out that he won his Nobel Prize in 2003 for work that he had done 30 years ago. 
He pointed out that currently at the University of Nottingham, he can only get on the equipment he needs to do his research. This is a senior professor who just won a Nobel Prize. He can only get on the equipment that he needs to do his research once every six days. He felt very strongly that young scholars of top caliber simply would not have the working conditions needed now in Britain to do work that would win a Nobel Prize, with the net result that 30 years down the line, his younger colleagues, who may be bright, will not be winning prizes. It's also interesting to note that in Britain there is still a mandatory retirement age. Uh, Sir Peter is close to, is in his late 60s. He was immediately offered a job by an American university the week that he won the Nobel Prize. Now, why do so many Nobel quality scholars come to the United States? Well, for all of the problems we have in the United States, we really do universities right. We know how to build them, fund them, and support them. To take just one example that caused jaws to drop all over Cambridge, this came out just after I got there, the Harvard Endowment alone, to say nothing of the endowment of Princeton or Caltech or the University of Texas system or Ohio State, the, the endowment of Harvard alone is double the endowment of all British universities combined. Now, that money translates into results. When the journal Science in 2004 ranked universities around the world on the basis of quantitative measures, such as numbers of articles published, prizes won, prize-winning staff employed, it found that of the top 50 universities worldwide, 35 were American. Now think about that. Think about how many countries and how many universities there are in the world. And of the top 50, 35 were American. There's also a university in Shanghai, Zhaotong University. Now if you're a university in China, there's no percentage for you in promoting the United States. But this university publishes a survey every year, again on objective criteria, number of articles published and so forth. And last year's survey found that of the top 10 universities, eight were American, and of the top 30 universities, 22 were American. This is a Chinese survey. And there's all kinds of statistics I could go on. The Harvard Economics Department alone publishes more articles than any continental European country. I could go on and on. But basically, one of our sources of strength are our universities and the advantage in knowledge production and technology production that they give us. Another way to measure U.S. might is comparatively. If you look at the British Empire, the British Empire did indeed have global reach. Uh, it covered roughly about a quarter of the globe at its height, dominated roughly about a quarter of world population. The U.S., in contrast, has just 14 formal dependencies. But Britain was a tiny sea power. Sorry, Britain was a major sea power with a tiny army and a tiny defense budget, relatively speaking. Its defense budget was not equal to that of its nearest two competitors combined. If you take the current U.S. defense budget, and it varies a little bit depending on how you calculate it, what you include and what you don't, but roughly speaking, current U.S. defense spending is equal to that of the next 15 nations combined. This, this has never happened before in history. There is no historical equivalent to the share of military power head by the, held by the United States. The United States right now faces only asymmetric threats. So clearly, of my four hypotheses, this third one, I think, is a factor. I think military and technological imbalance is a factor. But I'm going to disagree with Kagan. This, it, this isn't all that matters. You can't stop there and say Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus. Uh, and that's why I'd like to include my fourth hypothesis, which is current policies. You have to remember that the United States has experienced a unipolar moment fairly recently. Not this one, but at the end of World War II. 
That global conflict devastated most major powers, but it pulled the U.S. out of the Depression and promoted a truly extraordinary growth in productivity. In other words, the destruction caused by war spared the continental United States and enabled it to make extraordinary gains vis-a-vis its trading partners and allies. America, America emerged as the holder of both the only nuclear weapons in the world and the world's reserve currency, which is an impressive double feat. Now, admittedly, its nuclear monopoly did not last long, and Europe in particular showed astounding economic resilience in its recovery. But the relevant question for our purposes here today is, why did the previous American unipolar moment produce one of the strongest periods of transatlantic cooperation ever, such as the Marshall Plan, NATO, the IMF, and why is the current moment appearing to have the exact opposite result? Now, there's an easy answer, which is then you had the Soviet threat and now you don't, but I don't think that's all there is to it. As John Eikenberry, a political scientist at Princeton, has pointed out, we are in a reordering moment once again. The end of World War II was a reordering moment, and the current time is a reordering moment. And I think what is guiding, what is, what is surprising about this reordering moment is it is the first time in living memory that U.S. policy during this reordering moment is not being guided by a principle of liberal institutionalism. If you think back to the time of Wilson, if you think back to the time of World War II, the attitude of senior U.S. foreign policymakers was very different. As John Gaddis had pointed out, previous U.S. leaders saw the need to persuade allies, to persuade allies, that they were better off with the United States as its dominant power than with any other country in the world. Now, why is the U.S. failing to do this today? Well, let me now jump to what I can hardly call a conclusion by speculating on two reasons why the United States is failing to persuade its allies that they're better off with the United States than with any other country. The first is the lingering effects of September 11th. And I'd like to recommend, if you haven't already, I'd like to recommend to you uh, the book Against All Enemies by Richard Clark, who was what was known as the counterterrorism czar uh, under both the Clinton and Bush administrations. He, I'm, I don't know him personally, but I'm grateful to him because in the first chapter of that book, he describes many of the events in the White House on September 11th, and thereby put into the public domain things that I knew but was not able to talk about in public because of my security clearance. So I strongly recommend that you read the first chapter of that book. In particular, now I should say also, before I go any further, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I personally was important in the Bush White House. My first day of work for the White House was September 4th, 2001. So the first week went well. <laughs> I had hardly made myself indispensable to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy in the seven days I was at the White House before the plane hit. So I, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I personally was a mover and shaker, uh, uh, despite the fact that I got to talk to But I did work with people who were in the situation in March September 11th. So the historians in the room can judge for themselves what, what quality of source I am. And what was amazing about that day, and I think it's important to revisit this because this still very much shapes the mindset of senior policymakers, was the unusual combination of anxiety and religiosity. What do I mean by anxiety? Well, it was an unusual day. Usually, your importance in the White House was determined by your loyalty to the president and how well you knew him. Uh, if you had known the president as a child and 
had uh, been a roommate attending prep school, you, your chances were high that you had White House real estate. Uh, if you had only signed on after you were governor of Texas, especially if you'd only signed on after you'd already started the presidential campaign, you were probably looking at Nebraska Avenue real estate for your office. So usually your importance was measured not by your expertise on a subject, but on your, how well the president knew you, your loyalty to him. This is, by the way, not unique to this administration. Uh, this is a, a, a not unusual feature of senior level politics. But bizarrely, on that day, counterterrorism experts actually were in charge because honestly, people did not know what was going on. So lower level people, in other words, people like me, not me personally, but people I work with, actually were significant because senior decision makers were looking to them for explanations of what was going on. And more importantly, everyone in the White House was making decisions in an intense state of anxiety. As one of my colleagues put it, it was like being in combat. I felt that I could die, and I wouldn't even know if it happened. Because the people working in the White House in the Situation Room had known that there was another inbound plane. And before it crashed in Pennsylvania, the assumption was that this was about, well, this was about to happen to the White House. Uh, the support staff had been evacuated. Uh, none of this, please proceed to the exits in an orderly fashion. Uh, the support staff had been told, if you have on high heels, take them off. If you're wearing your White House credentials, which is usually your most favored possession, rip it off and throw it away and run. The idea was that uh, not only were we thinking that there was a plane inbound, but also that there were car bombs waiting for us outside. A rumor circulating on that day, which was not true, was that a car bomb had gone off outside the State Department. And so people inside the White House, again, I wasn't there, uh, felt very strongly that if they ran out of the White House, there was a potential for car bombs and perhaps snipers. If they stayed in, the plane was going to land on them. You have to understand this kind of anxiety, that this, this, is, this just is the context for all the decisions made that day, and that persists. And finally, there was a very clear sense, and this again is now in the public sphere, uh, largely uh, in the subsequent New York Times article that came out, the president's sense of divine mission. This is something that he did, that we did discuss with him. He felt very strongly that it was not just the U.S. electorate that had made him president on September 11th. That divine providence played a role in making him president on September 11th and no one else. And he had heard his calling, and his calling was to respond to September 11th. So if you feel that you have a mandate from God, uh, this is clearly a recipe for overconfidence and for overselling the mission that follows. So. I feel that one of the first reasons you have this U.S. go-it-alone attitude, lack of interest in liberal institutions, lack of interest in cooperation, has to do with this extreme anxiety, this extreme fear, this, this hunger for vengeance, this sense of a divine mandate, which Europeans do not understand at all. This is completely foreign to the European mindset. Secondly and finally, I think what's also going on is that we have once again embarked on a Cold War mission without the Cold War context. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the eternal question that underlies this is uh, the question memorably phrased by Michael Roskin in 1974. Does the territorial defense of the United States start on the near or on the far side of our oceans? Now, the Cold War answer, the answer after World War I was it starts on the near side. After the bitter lesson of, of Hitler in World War II, the answer was it starts on the far side. And most importantly, the United States needs to engage itself on the far side in such a way that its presence on the far side in providing for its own security does not breed counterproductive resistance. Uh, 
The solution that emerged, as Eikenberry has famously termed it, was strategic restraint. Now, what this means is after victory, in other words, after, for example, the victory of the Western Allies in World War II, you've got three options. You can either, number one, abandon the territory you've just conquered, go home and hope for the best. That was the World War I solution, but we saw what happened there. Uh, You have, number two, occupation. In other words, you stay, you occupy. We can see in Iraq the costs of that choice. Or, number three, you persuade both your allies and your former enemies to act in ways that are conducive to mutual security. This is tricky, it's a slow process, but ultimately it is the least costly. And Eikenberry argues that this is what the United States did after World War II. The United States voluntarily chose to embed its might in a web of international institutions, in other words, Gulliver let himself be tied down by the Lilliputians, in the long-term interest of creating transatlantic cooperation that would be the least costly way of providing for a defense of the United States starting on the far side of the ocean. So I think the heart of the problem is this. There is very much the people in office now, of course, their mentalities were shaped during the Cold War era, and they are perpetuating the Cold War mission, which is starting the defense of the United States on the far side of the ocean without any of the concomitant Cold War political initiatives or new institutions designed to legitimize U.S. authority on the far side. The U.S. efforts to defend itself by forward basing in Europe was, of course, accompanied by all the international institutions that we know well, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, the UN, and then, of course, NATO, which institutionalized transatlantic military cooperation. Paradoxically, NATO was a strange alliance for the U.S. to join because the NATO alliance actually, in the short run, decreased U.S. security. Usually a power joins an alliance to increase its security, but when the U.S. joined NATO, it actually increased the territory for which it was responsible without any immediate way of defending that territory other than nuclear threats. But, of course, this was in the long-term interest of the United States. Now, uh, there's an interesting open question, which is, what is the grand strategy here? Is the grand strategy uh, post-World War II uh, to promote democratization, to promote stability worldwide, or is the goal to to promote stabilization worldwide in order to defend the U.S.? But it's a bit of an academic point. What's clear is that the United States had a different attitude post-World War II. So it's amazing now that the current administration is pursuing the defense of the U.S. Uh, in, in, in far more extreme ways than we did in the Cold War. If you look at the second Bush inaugural speech, portions of which were shaped by one of my advisors, John Lewis Gaddis, uh, the policy of the United States uh, has, has taken a new and expansive turn. President Bush declared in the inaugural that it was the policy of the United States, not the desire or the hope, but the policy of the United States, this is a quote, to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every, nat- in every nation and culture with the goal of ending tyranny in our world. In other words, it is the policy of the United States to end tyranny. Now, this statement partially came out of a desire to one-up Reagan because, of course, Ronald Reagan in his second term famously called for Reagan to tear down this wall. And the question was, if you're a second-term Republican president la- laying out the map for your second term, how can you think even bigger, not tear down this wall, but end tyranny? So this is a a truly remarkable statement, and it also falls prey to one of the cardinal sins of strategy making. Its stated intentions outstrip actual U.S. capabilities. We are not in a position to end tyranny everywhere in the world. And as a result of all these errors that I think the current administration is making, 
Not that George calls me up and says, Mary, what should we do? But <laughs> uh, it is failing to convert its overwhelming military power into legitimate authority. And transatlantic tensions are, I would submit to you, a manifestation of this. So in conclusion, what's going on is not a simplistic fight over whether or not to use force. Uh, it's not even an, abate, an ethical debate about whether or not force remains an acceptable tool of statecraft for most developed nations. It clearly remains a tool of statecraft for both the U.S. and Europeans. What's going on is a practical change that the U.S. is continuing a Cold War military mission in spirit without seeking to legitimize its actions. It misguidedly believes that the revolution in military affairs has advanced so far that the U.S. can launch offensive wars at relatively low cost, both in terms of casualties and public approval ratings. As to the latter, it's not at all surprising that the arguments of Peter Fever and Chris Jelpe, uh, namely that the promise of victory will ensure continued U.S. public support, have found such favor in D.C., and Peter Fever now has a full-time job working for the Bush administration. As John Mueller has shown, uh, this notion is seductive but untrue. The political cost is higher than anticipated, and the physical cost is higher than anticipated. We are currently breaking the U.S. Army. Anytime you use the U.S. military, you break it. And the question is how badly. Now, the result is a dire situation in transatlantic relations. And I think that this matters because the Europeans are our best possible partners for pretty much any, any initiative we would like to take in the interest of international security. It is much less costly to share the burdens of the 21st century world than to face them alone. But at the moment, such cooperation is very difficult to achieve. As Tony Judd, a, a, one of the foremost scholars of transatlantic relations, has pointed out, Currently, quote, even if it could be demonstrated beyond a doubt that American hegemony really was a net good for everyone, even if you could demonstrate beyond a doubt that American hegemony was a net good for everyone, its putative beneficiaries in the rest of the world would still reject it anyway. Thank you. John. I know it's starting to take counterfactual. But I'd like to ask you um, about Iraq. Suppose it had gone right. Suppose the United States had gone in the same way and they found somebody to mass destruct the Constitution of Concentration for terrorism, maybe. And mainly that the country sort of fell in line and sort of started working itself out like Kosovo or Bosnia or like Panama without any insurgency. You know, I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure I can agree with that. I mean, that's the beauty of counterfactuals is there's never a right answer. But I'm not sure I'd agree with that. And the reason I say that is um, the uh, the few things that have gone right, such as the success of the elections, all of those media pictures of blue fingers, people who voted, those didn't really have any impact on European polls and the, the attitude towards the United States and what was doing in Iraq. So even the, the, the few cases, I'm trying to think of, you know, a few cases where things did go right. Um, also, it's not clear that, that the, the scenario you posited, finding weapons of mass destruction and then the country falling into line, that A, would necessarily lead to B. 
uh, finding weapons of mass destruction might not have led to pacification of the country. But I think ultimately what's going on is not, not positing that it did. Positing that it did. I, I think ultimately what's really going on is not about Iraq. Uh, it's, def it's, it's the flashpoint for European resentment of U.S. military dominance for the sense that uh, the United States is the bull in the international China shop, that the United States is the biggest threat to peace in the world, uh, that it's ignoring the sovereignty of nations, it's invading them, it's bombing them routinely, uh, it's ignoring international institutions. That is ultimately the source of the grievance. And so the even if things went right in Iraq, I don't think it would budge that grievance. Uh, then, then the response would have been, well, you could have achieved this without all the loss of Iraqi civilian lives. You could have achieved this without the, the use of force. You should, you should have let the inspectors keep going. They would have found the WMD. In other words, I don't think the debate is ultimately about Iraq. Uh, Kate, I know you have to go. Um, uh, two things. Yeah. Uh, one was uh, on the liberal institutionalism question. Mm. Mm -hmm. pointed out that according to pre-existing resolutions right. 678 and 686 that mm -hmm. the ceasefire in 1991 had been contingent on Iraq observing the conditions uh, laid down in those resolutions it hadn't, it already had authority to go to war, mm -hmm. it went back to the UN and then it was Pavia 10 Villepin, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name Villepin Uh, the, on the first question, that you could make a case for this, that it was actually the U.S. that was respecting institutions, I, I guess the problem with that is that the Matthew Rycroft memo, the Downing Street memo, that became public a couple of years ago, again, this is one of these many issues that was headline news throughout Europe and was hardly a blip on the radar screen here, which, which if, if it is what it's supposed to be, I, obviously it's been leaked, uh, it's a transcript of conversations between Bush and Blair making clear that the decision to go into Iraq predates any of the, the UN follies that followed. So the European perception is that uh, any attempts to go through the UN were, were just a smokescreen to make opponents both within the State Department <laughs> and within European capitals happy, but actually had no practical bearing on the formulation of policy whatsoever. So European analysts would reject that absolutely. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, people like John Bolton, people familiar, friendly to the, the U.S. government, would offer what, exactly what you just said as a defense of the U.S. commitment to international institutions. I mean, one of the big paradoxes, ongoing conflicts of the, of the, really the Cold War period, but particularly the late Cold War and post-Cold War period, is the fact that the United States established these institutions and yet so often finds itself at odds with them. 
And so there's just this ongoing contradictory story about the U.S. attitude towards these institutions that you, you, you can never really pin down. Um, so that would be my response. I, I guess you know, where you would stand on that question is where you sit. Uh, and then where is Europe in all of this? Again, you'd have you know, a European and a Bush response. Uh, uh, certainly the Bush administration team would be saying, yes, this is classic free rider problem. Uh, you know, we've gotten rid of, of a big nasty man and they didn't have to spend anything to do it other than the Brits, so free riders. The European response would be uh, what number of civilians died, how many new terrorists are being created, why didn't we let the weapons inspectors go on longer and discover that they didn't actually have weapons anymore. The European response would be we do want to work these issues, but with the tools available to us. Uh, and that's economic leverage. That's the kind of that's a slow process, a process that we're seeing in Iran. That would be the European response. It would be we're not shirking our duties. We actually want to proceed in a different way using our comparative advantage, which is not military might. It's the fact that we're still welcome in parts of the world where you don't dare show your faces anymore. So again, you know, both of those issues, it's very hard to find common ground on those issues. Yeah. Let me uh, go back for, for another counterfactual question yeah. that would precede John's. And that's the election of 2000. Okay. Most people whose views I respect mm -hmm. believe that had Gore been elected, mm -hmm. he certainly would have gone into Afghanistan, but almost certainly would not have used September 11th as an excuse to invade Iraq. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you agree with that. Or I not, do. But if you, if you take that as an assumption, yep. then what you're seeking to explain here is very contingent mm -hmm. on the accident of the election of 2000. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a corollary of your argument that had that gone a different way, had there been a Democrat in the White House, much of what we've seen, which has ignited transatlantic uh, you know, bitterness, wouldn't have taken place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, that, you're absolutely right. That is contingent. Guilty as charged. Uh, I actually believe very strongly in agency in history. I believe very strongly in the fact that George W. Bush is president and his biography and his personal views do matter. Now, obviously, that needs to be understood in the context of the U.S. economic situation, the military factors, all of the numbers that I put up there. But I, I don't agree with a, a school of thought that there are these, these great forces. I don't agree with Kagan's statement that, it's, it's, that Bush is irrelevant. I mean, Bush says, Kagan says very clearly in that infamous article, uh, what's going on in transatlantic relations is not a Bush problem. It would happen if anyone were president. It's a power discrepancy problem, pure and simple. It just has to do with the fact that we have power and they don't. I don't agree with that. I believe that it does matter. I think it was contingent. I think the election of 2000 mattered a great deal. I agree with that counterfactual that the United States would have gone into Afghanistan and not Iraq if Gore were president. Uh, I... Um, I think that that has to be understood in the dynamic of what is going on. Now, that is a larger question in historiography, the extent to which how individuals and their biographies play a role or are unimportant, and I believe very much that they do play a role. That's a larger topic, though, than just specifically the counterfactual of 2000. Other questions? Yeah, Jeffrey. And so is mine. <laughs> but, but first, I just idly wanted to, to, to inquire mm -hmm. why do you think 18% of Europeans believe that Blair and Bush didn't lie? <laughs> anyway, um, having said that, um, my counterfactual is this um, on the uh, 10th and 11th of September 2001, mm -hmm. the 
band at Buckingham Palace played the American national anthem. Wait, did you see? I'm sorry, did you see on the 10th of September? Probably was the 11th. Uh, sorry, the 12th and 13th of September. Okay. And uh, even in a northerly town like Aberdeen, all the traffic lights turned red for mm. two minutes. Mm. There was enormous support for America mm. in the United yep. States. And that is all evaporated. Mm -hmm. So I'm building very much on bombs. Had America acted differently to conserve that enormous surge of support and sympathy, things would be different. But America is still a bull in the china shop. Mm -hmm. That hasn't changed. Nothing would have changed like that. Right. So I'm not sure that I agree that it's the power disequilibrium, the asymmetry of power. <coughs> I think it's the way in which it is used. And I think that moment of solidarity mm. after 9-11 shows that the underlying feelings between Europe and America are perhaps not quite as negative as you're presenting them. In other words, I agree with you, it's agency. Mm -hmm. I just on the uh, the eighteen percent number, the uh, I'd have to look up the exact phrasing of the poll question, but the the phrasing of the question was something along the lines of, "Did Bush and Blair know absolutely that there were no weapons of mass destruction, and they were just deceiving the world?" So there were eighteen percent of Europeans willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were getting bad intelligence. Uh, the, I would have to look up the exact polling. On the broader question, is it just the disequilibrium of power or is agency involved? I, I, I think I'm probably somewhere at, a, at a, an intermediate position. I, I, it, it is certainly true that all of that support evaporated astonishingly quickly. And uh, in my opinion, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and the United States wasted this crisis. Uh, the, this crisis actually could have been a chance to take advantage of post-September 11th to truly reform international institutions. Uh, that was a much more compelling event than the 60th anniversary of the UN. September 11th could may, perhaps have been a moment when you had enough unity to create meaningful UN reform or to create meaningful ICC reform or to perhaps create new kinds of transatlantic cooperation under NATO, you name it. But that was a moment to when it would have been possible, one of the few moments when it would have been possible to reshape international institutions in a way to make them more suitable for the 21st century. Uh, there was a speech that Tony Blair gave that was much admired in the White House. People were passing copies hand to hand where he said, the kaleidoscope has been shaken. Let us order the world new before the pieces settle. And certainly, you know, we were getting copies of it. Uh, Blair, of course, is incredibly popular in this White House and population alone, but that didn't happen. And so I, uh, I think that the... I'm not willing to quite agree with you that the moment of September 12th, 13th showed this sort of fundamental underlying, underlying peace, love, and happiness that would have come out except for Bush. I think there would always be some degree of tension. The Cold War history that I described shows that that's ongoing tension, but that agency does matter, and it could have tipped slightly better, much better, or much worse, which is what we've got, and we have ended up wasting a crisis. Yes, Carol? Well, maybe because they're French. Uh, the French are very caught with the whole issue of neocons mm -hmm. and their influence on American foreign policy. These are children of the 60s and their mm -hmm. grandchildren of Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, also mm -hmm. saw God and carried mm -hmm. out his yeah, yep. in Paris. Uh, you remember Penoso's famous clip about that. Um, how important is this in your discussion of friends and relatives? How important is God or well, neocons? I, or? No, Denise Artaud is very popular in France right now, and the neocons in America. It's very 
that, that makes a very persuasive argument that, yes, Bush is important, but there's a kind of nexus of ideas in America right. uh, that goes way, way back with the salvationist ideology, the interventionist ideas, the, yeah, creating liberal institutions, but also subverting them or ignoring them. Yeah. Yeah, the famous quotation to which Carol's referring is the 14 points. Uh, Wag frames the comment to God only needed 10 commandments and Wilson needs 14. <laughs> um, yes, the, this interesting question about neocons, I think the high watermark of the neocon influence on this administration was the national security strategy of September 2002, which stated as U.S. policy that, the, quote, the best defense is a good offense. Uh, the neocons, as... as um, uh, you know by now, I, I like the book by James Mann, Rise of the Vulcans. Uh, the neocons are children of the 60s who learned a different lesson from the other children of the 60s. These weren't the hippies. These are the people with short haircuts. These were Samuel Alito and his friends uh, who learned lessons about the breakdown of order. And so what they kept with them, these are people like Wolfowitz, Doug Feith, and so forth, they kept, they kept the spirit of activism, the sense that you should change the world, but from a very different point of view. It's a, from, a, from a triumphalist U.S. point of view, uh, and in some senses from a religious point of view, you're on a divine mission. And this clearly had the sympathy of the White House at key moments. Now, it's important to remember, I think, that there was a, there was a sort of neocon heyday in 2003, 2004, uh, with books coming out saying the neocons were running everything. If you actually look at the... The, I mean, there's not, you know, there's not a neocon club. You know, people don't have membership cards or not. It's not like the Communist Party. Um, but if you look at people who would, you could reasonably classify as neocon, they didn't actually have that high positions in the administration. Wolfowitz was deputy secretary of defense, that kind of thing. Uh, so it is, it, it, is, it is still an interesting open question, and I think it will require historical study when more documents are available, the extent to which the neocons actually shaped U.S. foreign policy. To a certain extent, neocons didn't see France as the enemy. They saw Colin Powell as the enemy. They saw liberal Republicans, uh, the voice of moderation, uh, the voice that wanted to work with international institutions. Those were the, you know, the, the, the beltway conflicts were the bigger conflicts. Um, and there was obviously, that was, you know, not entirely untrue. There, are, there were clearly very divisive splits within this administration. I mean, we were, you know, party of some of them, my friends in the State Department working on the Future of Iraq project. Uh, as, you know, people now know that uh, this huge project put together, drawing largely from the example of German occupation, was carted over thousands of pages. Uh, two reps from state went over to, to the Defense Department to talk about it, and they were told by the secretary to leave the building before sundown. And that was the end of the, of the future of Iraq project and the planning for the post-Iraq construction. So you clearly have these, these conflicts going on between the neocons who have this sort of very simplistic vision that it will all work out and the more nuanced liberal Republican vision. A wordy way of saying there were internal conflicts inside the administration that weren't immediately available, in immediately apparent in public. So I'm not quite willing to say the neocons ran everything and it's their fault, but clearly that is an important strand of thought. More questions? Yeah, Rick. It does seem to me, though, that across your story, that I can't remember any time in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s where the core European allies were on the same page as the United States when it came to the Middle East. Mm -hmm. 
other after the after the uh, Iranian uh, episode mm -hmm. uh, and in '53, mm -hmm. that was sort of the the end of those those days. We saw things differently, and in fact, even close allies and friends like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan had no ability to agree on what to do in the Middle East, and they disagreed strongly. That she would lead the EU and or the NATO Europeans in one direction on all matter of Middle East issues. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I wonder whether your story is not too sort of Middle East centric implicitly. And, and if you think about what the United States is doing now in Asia uh, or with North Korea more specifically, it's quite multilateral. It's trying to either engage or build uh, Asian-wide institutions to contain North Korea and work with China <coughs> and mm -hmm. Japan and Russia. <coughs> to institutionalize this in Asia. Uh, it's, I don't think, hostile to the OAS. Mm -hmm. I don't see it abandoning institutionalism uh, in, in the, the Americas mm -hmm. in any fundamental way. Uh, it's the Middle East, yeah. it seems to me. And I wonder whether we're overgeneralizing from a very specific story. Uh, okay. Maybe it's related to your neocon question, but I, I just don't know how, yeah. how global this is and how. Yeah, I mean, I have to. That, that's obviously a big question, and I'd have to think through a lot of examples. But I'm, I'm not entirely, I'm not entirely sure I agree with your rosy assessment of the U.S. attitude towards, say, North Korea, as you just mentioned. I mean, one of the uh, one of the more jaw-dropping actions of this administration, as you know well, was to actually draw out, was to draw back from the agreed framework process that had been gotten gotten rolling under the Clinton administration towards North Korea, and to to disengage from North Korea. I think that the, the diplomatic re-engagement has largely been a function of some lessons learned from Iraq, but certainly that was, to me, the way that the South Korean premier was treated when he came over to the White House in 2001 as one of the first visitors uh, was, to me, one of the most startling indications that this was going to be a very different White House. Uh, I think that, um, so I'm not quite sure I'm, I'm willing to say that there was this in, in, intrinsic goodwill and the Middle East was the exception. Um, also, the, uh, the you could, I also haven't talked at all very much about current disputes over a Palestinian state. Uh, this is actually another issue. I guess this is another issue. It would be more in the Middle East, but this is actually another issue creating a lot of tension between the United States and European governments. With the, the sympathies are obviously very divided with the United States perceived as backing the Israelis excessively and the Europeans feeling that they need to counterbalance that with support for the Palestinians. Um, this is somewhat of a rambling answer to your question. Um, I... I some of the examples that I just mentioned as well, I talked about disputes over Vietnam, which is clearly not in the Middle East, disputes about the stationing of nuclear weapons on European territory, which is clearly not in the Middle East, uh, disputes over when to use force in the Balkans, which is clearly not in the Middle East. So I, I don't actually think that the picture I've drawn here is particularly Middle East-centric, although it is because the most recent conflict is Iraq. That's the one I've chosen to talk most about, and it's the one that I know personally from time yeah, spent uh, in, in the government. Um, but I don't actually think I agree with you, and if I've, perhaps I've mischaracterized my argument and could state it more clearly. Jeffrey again. I, I'd like to comment on, yeah. on Rick's point, being far, far older. <laughs> um, and, and the uh, gasoline rationalization, 
ran irrationally and succeeded it. Mm. But I'd like to talk uh, about the uh, months of 2001 just before 9 11. Mm -hmm. um, I was in Spain uh, in June 2001 when Bush made his very first foreign trip and the first place he chose to go was Spain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Spanish coverage, uh, of course, is much more. Um, that wasn't his first foreign trip, that was his first European trip. As, uh, excuse me, his first trip to Europe right. as, as president. Right. The second was the missile shield, and the third was help uh, uh, against terrorism. And the president said, I'm not interested in any of those. What I want is your support over missile shields, which only run for Kyoto, and terrorism. We don't, we don't believe in state building, state help of the world. So, you know, he was not making any effort before 9 11. So, again, returning to my first point, that moment of solidarity was more than just a kaleidoscope shaking. Already, the Bush administration has alienated Europe uh, big time uh, by ignoring the issues that were proposed. And it seems to be a pity on, on both scores uh, that the uh, consensus, which I guess would have tolerated Afghanistan, <laughs> was then pushed. And all of those three issues, this is the next to the next point, all of the three issues on which the Europeans wanted American power were, were not Yeah, it's um, uh, you know it's interesting what you've just said. The um, this administration very much came to office feeling that uh, it it was in the helm at a time of reordering international relations, and it felt that in January 2001, not of course because of 9/11, which hadn't happened yet, but because there was a sense that the Clinton administration and somehow failed to adjust to the post-Cold War realities, and now this administration would. And if you go back, it's very interesting to look at foreign affairs, Condi Rice and others, articles that they published making it clear that treaties no longer mattered. Treaties, you know, the Bismarck view, treaties aren't worth the paper they're written on. No great, a pow, you know, a great power has, only has interests, right, not friends. So we were going to ignore treaties. The United States was not going to ask for permission slips. This attitude is apparent early 2001. Uh, it was going to go after rogue states. This comes out very clearly in the Paul O'Neill book. Pa Paul O'Neill was the Treasury Secretary, and he was the first member of the original Bush cabinet to break ranks and resign and publish a kiss-and-tell book. And uh, in the book, he makes very clear that the very first meeting he attended, January 2001, was dominated by Iraq. Can we, let's go get Saddam Hussein. Uh, let's take a new aggressive attitude. So. Everything that I'm talking about, the sense that there was a reordering moment and U.S. foreign policy was going to reshape it and was not going to be guided by policies of liberal institutionalism, that was actually all present and very much uh, – and then – and at the time, in the summer of 2001, it seemed like the biggest crises, as you rightly mentioned, were things like Kyoto. So 9-11 just played into this brilliantly. Now, I must stop and add there that I'm not in any way saying that Bush knew that 9-11 was coming and let it happen. Uh, you know, we, always, we got wacko emails like this, I, you know, that – I mean, that would be a truly stunning finding if it comes out that that was the case. Um, you can debate about the significance of the, the August memorandum, Osama bin Laden determined to attack inside the United States, uh, and I certainly think the President should have responded more, more smartly to that. But, uh, you know, to know that what was going to happen on September 11th certainly was not in the gift of this current administration. So I think I'm basically just agreeing with you uh, that um, the story I'm telling here uh, is certainly expedited by September 11th, but it's not just a September 11th story. Yeah. 
this is also, uh, there was a, uh, Patrick Suskin is a journalist who worked with Paul O'Neill, the former Treasury Secretary, to help him produce his memoir, the one from which I just quoted about how the earliest meetings in January 2001 were about invading Iraq. Uh, Patrick Suskin is a Wall Street Journal reporter. And the reason I'm mentioning him again is that he published a, uh, a, a, again, a, for me, very useful New York Times article because he put in the public domain things that I knew but felt uncomfortable talking about um, because of the terms of my security clearance. Uh, and one of the features he highlighted was this bizarre notion that reality was passe. Right? He spoke to unnamed White House sources that said to him, you live in a reality-based environment. In other words, you have to deal with facts on the ground. We shape reality. Right? So we don't have to deal with traditional logical analysis because we are shaping a new order. Right? And so therefore, the kind of old standards of policy analysis just don't apply. So if you're saying this seems like it's not entirely logical, you're absolutely right. <laughs> More questions? Hi, Homera. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't quite hear you. The first thing you said was? Actually, the, the global uh, decline in support for the mm -hmm. uh, U.S. policies as well as its unilateral policies. Mm -hmm. Both of them are aspects of uh, decline in American hegemony when defined in terms of legitimate authority. Yeah, this is, I mean, I've heard this argument. I mean, you can say, well, that's great. The United States has the USSS Ronald Reagan but what good is that in a trade dispute with the EU over bananas? Uh, that the, the, um, the, that what really matters is soft power. This is very much a Joe Nye argument. So what you've actually got is declining U.S. hegemony because it's mismanaging its international relations so badly. Uh, I, I mean, I, I see the points in that argument. I think it's a deeper argument about how you understand power. And I, I guess I'm not willing to exclude military hardware from any description of power. I mean, these, these kind of statistics and numbers that I've just given here, these are about U.S. strength, about universities and Nobel Prizes. These are generally completely unknown to the people I'm lecturing to in Europe. And, you know, so I'm lecturing to European college undergraduates. Uh, I also lecture to uh, the Royal Army, British Petroleum executives, and I've, I've very rarely had anyone say, yeah, 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 I knew all that. So there's, in other words, this is anecdotal, but the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of the discussion about transatlantic relations takes place on assumptions about the strength of U.S. military might or how much NATO members of Europe spend on defense that, that simply aren't accurate. And uh, and when I bring up these numbers, I don't get the response of, yeah, 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 I knew that already. What I do get the response is, wow, that's really interesting, but actually it's irrelevant because it's only cultural power that matters. So uh, my feeling is, you know, we, we can have a debate about soft power and whether or not it's the primary form of power in 2006, but in order to have that debate, we at least need to be aware of the statistics that I've given here today. That would be, that would be my, my view, if that makes sense. And then we would get into a larger debate about soft power. So I want to thank Mary and thank all of you for coming. Uh, so we'll have her back for sure. <laughs> to hear about her new monograph that she's working on. So thank you all. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Thanks.